0: Stay up on the real culture of Detroit by tuning in to the Detroit is Different Podcast Network Weekly. Music, art, business, comedy, and never-before-told stories from the people of Detroit.
1: All right. Welcome back. Welcome back. It's been a hiatus, but this is a very special episode of Detroit is different. Like most times I say a special, but this one is going to be a deeper one because this is a man that is of that ilk. Uh, Like my dad, somebody that's a professional, definitely knows his way in and around this city. Detroit is different because it is so unique. And this man is right now currently running for mayor of the city of Detroit coming up in two thousand and twenty one. But he's also an attorney, a father, a Detroiter, somebody that loves Detroit. Uh, and and when I say attorney, too, he has the the mind of uh, as uh, the great uh, attorney Perkins always says, like, you know, law is like a strange bird. So you know, <laughs> attorneys have ways of seeing things, uh, deciphering information and this man definitely does that well. Anthony Adams,
0: how are you doing today? I'm fine, Kyrie. How are you, sir?
1: Man, everything is everything. A good Saturday. Uh, and you know, we happy to be out and about in the city,
0: man. I'm sitting here in the neighborhood, mm-hmm. you know, which is so wonderful. I uh, love your studio. Love Thank you. all the great saints and that coffee, uh, is killing me, man. I'm ready to take <laughs> that. With me. I remember when that movie came out.
1: Oh yeah. Pam Greer <laughs> is, is definitely a fixture of, of black culture. Uh, it uh, definitely Detroit is different culture. Oh, well,
0: I, I have, I have, I still have actually a collection of old DVDs, <laughs> and I think I have black, black mom, black was a black woman, white woman, mm. coffee, uh, all those all movies. The Pam man. Greer, yeah, and, uh, Pam yeah. Greer, she was that was my heart.
1: And, and, and then from that, we can even kind of get right into one of those discussions okay. because, uh, you know. Hollywood was really at a crux of not existing before what was now is labeled black exploitation films. Yes. But uh, it took the black face in films to save Hollywood. A lot of people don't recognize that, especially because it was labeled in a certain way. But yeah. in the 1970s, it was all of those stars. So Jim Brown and Jim Richard Brown. Roundtree, right. Pam Greer, oh, you know, TNT Jackson, and yeah. all of those films yeah. that helped Get the money Isaac back Kays out there. Even had a, oh yeah.
0: Koto. Yes. I yes. I mean, you know, uh, Fred Williamson. We had mm-hmm. a lot of. it had a lot of names. And that same trend actually continued. Uh, On TV, Mm -hmm. you know, in the the early 90s, you know, with with black TV, black Mm -hmm. uh, series coming on board, saving networks, survival. Mm -hmm. We've always been there in the gap to save America. But who's going to save us? We have to save ourselves.
1: And that moves us right to a Detroit discussion. And I definitely want to get to the general start questions. Mm -hmm. But Detroit is one of those unique places. As I say, it's different that the black creativity, the black class has been relied on. Every step of the way in the past hundred years to keep Detroit relevant.
0: Black folks have been at the backbone and the forefront of every progressive movement that has taken place uh, in the city of Detroit. I mean, whether you go back into the early labor movements and some of the mm-hmm. great ur- black urban labor leaders, whether you look at civil rights, whether you look at music, entertainment, art, black people have always epitomized the greatness of Detroit. And mm-hmm. I think we have to recognize that, but we don't pay enough homage to our own history. We kind of forget what was great about us. You had the birthplace of the Republican New Africa, the birthplace of the uh, uh, Nation, uh, of Nation of Islam. I mean, you had the, the birthplace of of the Shrine of the Black Madonna. Africa, you, you had, had a black liberation theology mm-hmm. that was at the core of what Detroit was, which is a, a series of self-empowerment between individuals, recognizing that blackness can be great and should be great. And we have to pay homage and recognize that.
1: Yeah, even in the Smithsonian Museum in D.C., if you walk through, you're going to notice so many Detroiters as you go through. Like the the museum starts with the journey from the Mayafa of the Middle Kept Passage. But then you have out of enslavement and out of enslavement, you see so many Detroiters. Right. And it's like you see this person, that person. And it's like, damn, I guess like the the face of. America's history has so much of Detroit's black history in it.
0: Well, you had because you had in Detroit, you had so many black business people who were independently wealthy Mm -hmm. and provided a great deal of financing and support for the civil rights movement. Whether you look at our pastor, for example, C.L. Franklin, who sent hundreds of thousands of dollars down south to help support these Mm -hmm. movements, black business people, black churches, um, black labor leaders have always played an important role in that. And somehow or another we've kinda lost our way about that. We've gotta we gotta get it back because we were at the forefront of so many things that were progressive, that were good, that were meaningful, and that was a a, formant, a moment of empowerment that we had in our city.
1: Most definitely. So that goes to the classic questions. Your family. What brought your family to Detroit?
0: So my family, actually, I came here in 1981. 81? I'm, I'm kind of, I came here during the height. It was right after the gas guzzler crisis. Uh-huh. The automobile industry had kind of fallen flat on its face because they were continuing to make gas guzzlers when the world had moved away from that with the price of oil. Uh-huh. The Arab oil embargo really put a big crimp on what happened. And I graduated from law school and I still got an appointment to serve as a law clerk to the Honorable Anna Diggs Taylor. Mm. She was the first African-American female woman on the Eastern District of Michigan. And so, in that experience, I had a chance to observe up close and very personal the workings of the federal government, because obviously they have civil uh, trials as well as they have criminal trials. And what I learned from that is the lot the ways of deception and how they would come in and ask for their wiretaps, and how they would construct their arguments about how they would infiltrate uh, organizations uh, in the city of Detroit, uh, in the city of Detroit, and understand how they operate and what their ultimate objective was, was to keep black folks um, um, minimize in their efforts and their activities. I recall in particularly one case where there was a very prominent black businessman who owned a bank, I'm not going to use a name, and he had a last name that was similar to a major drug dealing cartel uh, in the city of Detroit. And when they came in for the wiretap, uh, my federal judge said you guys have made a big mistake here, because this man is not related to these people. Well, Your Honor, you know he just bought this bank. He paid cash for it. Uh, where did he get the money? Well, the guy was a very successful uh, entertainer, entrepreneur, mm-hmm. uh, record uh, executive who had, who had amassed a wealth and was able to buy the things that he wanted to buy. So she was uh, she denied the warrant, wiretap request because she knew that he wasn't even related to these people. Now if you don't have black people in positions of power who are not afraid to use that power, Mm -hmm. because she could have cowered and kowtowed and signed a warrant and let them figure out ultimately that that he was not Mm -hmm. related, But she used her power in a way. So that taught me that you really have to be very careful on these positions. You have to try to operate with a high level of moral integrity. And you got to be courageous in your decision to want to move the city forward.
1: Well, definitely. And and speaking of that, uh, that bank owner, uh, you know, (laughs) thank God that didn't happen because I wouldn't have some of my favorite songs to to play
0: without that. That's right. Uh, Well, his name is Don Don Davis, uh, a great friend of mine, uh, passed. Um, obviously not too long ago, but mm-hmm. he was a he was a trailblazer uh, in the industry and was a man who understood how to use his courage, how to use his money wisely yes. to help sustain a, a black institution here in the city of Detroit.
1: Most definitely. And uh, him and his uh, brother, Will Davis, Will grew Davis. up right in this neighborhood, exactly. like right around the corner. Central graduates. Central uh,
0: graduates. In fact, he would tell me all the time that when he went to Central, there actually were not a lot of blacks. Not uh, at and, all. and in fact, my first apartment was at Calvin and LaSalle Wow! I could see Central High School out of my window it was a two family flat my my landlord was Mr. and Mrs. Mann I think Mm. Mr. Mann lived actually to be like about 102 years old Wow! his son uh, Larry Mann a very prominent attorney uh, he was Mm -hmm. clerking at that time for uh, federal judge uh, Mm Fikens so that was my first apartment uh, in the city of Detroit I love that apartment. Uh, Mm -hmm. Very simple, easy to maintain. My rent was, I think it was $350 a month. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was a lot of money back then because I think I was only making like $27,000 a year.
1: And you ran into some of the toughest basketball games you could think of if you were playing basketball in that neighborhood at that time. I mean, you know, Detroit, was there was
0: just so much talent. I mean, there was so much athletic talent. Whether you went to a PSL, football games, basketball games, baseball games, this city produced so many great, Athletes, but also so many great musicians. I mean, yeah. when you look at the Motown legacy and all of the Funk brothers and where they went to school, you know, Detroit yeah. public schools had the greatest legacy uh, of music uh, of any school system in America, because how can you create that much talent in one city without having a strong public education system uh, to provide the resources and means for people to move forward?
1: It it was phenomenal. I think one of the key things that makes Detroit so different was that uh, the opportunities provided for black people here. And and it was other cities as they talk about the Great Migration. You had the Cleveland and the Pittsburgh and the Chicago, uh, but – here, yeah,
0: but as, it, wasn't, uh, it wasn't. It wasn't. It wasn't like Detroit, nah. Because nah. what you had was you had blacks in many areas. You had blacks in education. You had yeah. great, great ed- black educators. You had blacks who were administrators in education. You had blacks yeah. that were in business. You had blacks that were in labor. You had blacks that were in legal profession. Yes. You had blacks that were lawyers and doctors. You had mm-hmm. blacks all over the place, people who had positions of responsibility and power. And it was a melting pot, which yeah. created um, home ownership and black wealth. The city of detroit at one time had the highest percentage of african-american home ownership of any city in america and now we're the lowest of any Mm. city in america for african-american home ownership we've lost so much intergenerational wealth as a result of tax foreclosures uh tax captures which are stripped Money out of our community needed resources for our school system, and we've got to begin the process of changing that. It's 911 time for all of this,
1: yeah. I mean, uh, the as, as the story came out, I couldn't even believe it. My dad sent me the story, uh, that was released late last year about the courts finally admitted that uh, Detroiters were being overtaxed. Oh, but you can only go back like about five six years which is very convenient within the past five six years you have an influx of uh, non-black detroiters yes that can now receive some of those tax money. Uh, but monies. that
0: was a cop out, though, yeah. because if in fact Detroit yeah. folk have been overtaxed, then it's up to the administration to make right yeah. on the overtaxation. Yeah, and we're not just talking about overtaxation; we're talking about systemic overtaxation, yeah. which led to massive foreclosures yes. and loss of property and home ownership in the city of Detroit. Most definitely. So where you have a uh, when you have a wrong that's been committed against a predominantly black population, then you have a responsibility to correct that wrong and do things necessary to get people their money back assist them in getting their homes back because how do we create a vibrant city if the people who've been through thick and thin don't play a part and its resurgence and revitalization.
1: I I agree. I agree. And then just picking up that story. Eighty one. Where where were you coming from to come to Detroit?
0: I came here from uh, from Georgetown. Okay. Uh, I was. I went to law school in Georgetown. I um, said I grew up in Cincinnati. My mm-hmm. undergraduate training was in urban management, urban planning. I always wanted to be an urban manager. At that time, it was a big deal to be a professional city manager for a major wow. city. And so it, it, what I learned from that that experience is how they actually plan cities. How you deal with infrastructure how you deal with transportation looking at the racist policies of the federal highway administration which stripped and eliminated a uh, black communities black bottom here in the city of Detroit forced blacks to move out yeah. how do you deal with transportation policy to move people from point a to point b understanding how all that fits together to create a vibrant city and policies that you need to promote in order to have a city that will thrive you also understand the impact of, of state policy because c- cities are creatures of the state, that we get our power from the state. How do state policies inhibit or enhance or grow the city of Detroit? In the early 80s, um, when I first joined Mary Young's administration in 85, mm-hmm. uh, there was a big thing called the equity package, where the state legislature recognized the importance of Detroit. And so they had a separate spe- special allocation mm-hmm. that was given for the city of Detroit to help fund. The- the Detroit Institute of Arts, Mm -hmm. to fund the zoo, to fund the library commissions, and things of that nature. And then over time, systematically, the funding began to dwindle and it placed more and more financial stress on the city to have to pick up uh, the obligation to manage those things, which really created, I think, a death spiral for the city because on the one hand, you're losing population, and I think the city population was 1.3 million when I moved to the city of Detroit in Mm -hmm. 1981. To now in 2021, I think the population might be 650,000. So you've lost more than half the population Mm -hmm. since I've been here over 40 years. But even if you look back in 1950, you've lost almost 1.2 million people. You've lost probably 700,000 jobs. You have an economy that's still based on the structure of automotive industry and automotive supply that is so subject to swings, given what happens in the economy. And so we've not begun the process of redeveloping or retooling or repositioning, I would say, the state. And it's very difficult to reposition the city of Detroit if the state of Michigan doesn't reposition itself because our power flows from the state.
1: And, and uh, definitely in this series, and one of the things that you uh, you're going to be one of the candidates we interview. Uh, Detroit is different. It's partnered with Riverwise Magazine to do right. a candidate forum, but also just some voter education. Oh, so please, So I've we brushed need it. up a lot of what I've known about <laughs> uh, the structure of the 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 state granting rights to commission a city or a village or yes. or, or a township and, right. and what that structure looks like, how that structure is and this being such a heavy memorial city, what that is and how that is, you know, it's deep and go, kind of going back to some of the other things you were talking about uh, coming from Cincinnati. My dad's from Cincinnati. Oh, and is my, it? I got so much family, like right there in Avondale to this day. Avondale. Okay. So all right. It, yeah. Uh, uh-huh, it, I know so about that. Dale. Yep. Yep. And uh, even, even, <laughs> Charlie Beckham uh, yeah. and his people yeah. So uh, yeah. So The That relationship And he talks about What it was like Coming to the city And seeing Just Blackness. the amount of black That's exactly oh, what he said He God. says he got pulled over, he was like, he got pulled over by the cops early on What? and he was like, oh man, I gotta deal with this and he was like, damn, he was surprised to see two black officers. Well,
0: you know it was so interesting because back in those days, especially in the 80s when I got here, that you always had a chance when you got stopped by the cops because they were, were, were mostly black mm-hmm. and so the, the the story was if you got stopped, the first thing they said was right, you need to tell me what you got outstanding on if you got something mm-hmm. outstanding, because I don't really want to put your name in the system, because if once your name pops up as a hit, I got to take action. So yeah. you need to tell me what you got. I got some tickets. I got this. I, it was a conversation. And it was because he had done such great work, he being Coleman Young, to transform the culture and the nature of the police department. that yeah. They were sensitive to these because they were from the community. And yeah. we, they weren't about the business of jamming people up. Yeah. Uh, it just was a much different world back then.
1: And, and I mean, when we really think about Coleman's Rise to prominence mm-hmm. uh, through not just the unions, but to most Detroiters, it was breaking down stress in the big four. Yes, yeah. Because <laughs> it, it, this was a place where police brutality before, pre Coleman Young, was so rampant. It was. As we know from the rebellion. Uh, exactly. Right in this neighborhood that, you know, it needed to be changed.
0: It had it had to be changed because the the, the relationship between the police and the community had, was so fractured. Mm-hmm. And he was able to run on that, even though it was a very close race. We have yeah. to remind people that it wasn't like he yeah. won overwhelmingly like 80 percent of the vote. Mm-hmm. It was a very close race. It went down to the wire with the police commissioner, who basically was the embodiment of white racism yes. and, and, and and keeping the communities down. Uh, now, yeah. John Nichols, mm-hmm. who ultimately went on to do some other things, you know, outside the city of Detroit, as most people do when they get run out the city of Detroit.
1: Yeah, and, and and see, and that's part of the historic divide because even when we look at like a community like mine, and and reframing what was labeled things like "quote unquote" like Devil's Night, yeah. which to me was <laughs> uh, uh, something that. At the time traditional media definitely hopped on top of. Oh. Man. But the true framework of what was happening were were people that left their homes. Uh primarily white folks that left their homes yes. and, and wanted to come back and still make a little bit of money off of it. But it was painted like it's just like these ravaging black folks just yeah. burning
0: down the city. Well, it was, I mean, Detroit became the became the dumping ground for everything that was supposed to be bad with urban America. Whether yes. it was the Devil's Night phenomena uh, where people were constantly quote, having their cars stolen in the city of Detroit. I mean, Detroit has always been the convenient whipping boy uh, for the media, mainstream media to try to paint a picture about the yeah. devastation of what occurs in the city of Detroit yeah. and who actually is responsible for that devastation. And so we've, 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 we've got to change the narrative because I think people need to better understand the forces in play that have impacted the city of Detroit in a manner that I don't think you see in any other major city in America I agree. because of the fact that Detroit is a predominantly black population. Yes. It's the largest, biggest Blackest city in America. And when you have a legislature that has not been receptive, at least over the last, I want to say 30 years, especially with the advent of John Engler and his reign of terror, you know, throughout the state where he eliminated uh, programs for for mental health, Mm -hmm. closing the Lafayette Clinic, you know, moving to a mass incorporation, um, mandatory minimum sentences, which led, excuse me. To mass incarceration of black individuals, a lot of whom are now finding out were wrongfully convicted yes. and have been exonerated after serving 30 years in jail. Yeah, really. So we got to understand those forces and how they're at play today, because it's a very subtle form of I'm gonna call it reverse racism on ourselves. They want us to be fair. You need to be fair about these things. You don't need to discuss race. Well, no, we need to discuss race because race has been at the forefront of every major decision that's ever been made concerning the city of Detroit. And we need to understand that.
1: And and I definitely on that point, I I almost have to like pull it out now. Because I was I was wanting to definitely get in some more just in your story, okay. your journey here. Well, I can give you but some more of that. I want, we- uh, but I, I have a question directly to that. OK, uh, as one of the biggest debates I always get into, uh, especially with uh, with friends that aren't as familiar with the city of Detroit when they say, well, Detroit City's bankruptcy. And I'm yeah. like, well, we don't talking about the state of Michigan's profit share. Well, in, 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 in the state of Michigan, owing. The city of Detroit, millions. And really Hundreds one of the stances- Hundreds of millions is, of dollars. Yeah, yeah you so said it best. Let's talk about
0: the great shell game that was played in the okay, 90s.
1: Okay, please, please let, Dennis let's- Dennis Archer
0: is elected mayor. Uh, it's on the ballot about the casino initiative to move forward. Mm-hmm. Um, it passed. No one ever thought casino gaming would pass in the state of Michigan. Mm-hmm. It passes by a narrow margin. You have uh, preferences for three casino, well, preferences for at least two of the three casino licenses in the city of Detroit. What happened was in in exchange for passing legislation to enable casino gaming, there was a requirement that the city of Detroit would begin to reduce its non-resident income tax. Non-resident income tax, which had been a creature, I think, of Coleman, yes, Coleman Young. Well, he, he lobbied the legislature to get a non-resident income tax imposed on people who didn't live in, who worked in the city of Detroit, but didn't live here. Yeah. So as part and parcel of that of that plan, they began to reduce the amount of, of, of Wait, income and tax. And I, and, I,
1: and I wanna say this, for everybody listening, that was important because right. it was a lot of folks, if you don't know, Detroit, it, like I always say, Michigan would be North Dakota if you took away Detroit, right. and I stand on that, meaning <laughs> it'd be Wyoming or it'd be a flyover state. Right. Detroit is what gives Michigan its flavor, and all these white folks that don't like Detroit, right. when they go other places, they, they don't say they're from Southland, they say, they, they say they're from Detroit. Exactly. So it was a lot of people that worked in Detroit, profited from Detroit, right. but- Coleman Young was like, okay, you don't want to be here. You're going to pay taxes here.
0: So you can continue. So at at that point, they also did another move. What they Mm -hmm. did was they began to reduce the amount of revenue sharing that the city was going to receive. There was a deal cut between the Archer administration and and the England administration, which basically said that they would provide a fixed amount of revenue sharing for the city for a 10-year period in exchange for them reducing non-resident income tax, um, which obviously benefited the suburbs. Well, I think two years into that agreement, the legislature scrapped it, did not provide the city with the revenue sharing that they were supposed to get, that was statutorily agreed to by the legislature and the city of Detroit. So that obviously begins to put a crimp in the city's finances. And on top of that, you had a period of time where they actually, when Coleman left, the size of the city's workforce actually had been reduced to its lowest level. Well, with with Archer, he he increased the size of the workforce, Mm -hmm. which increased the size of the benefits, which also increased the size of the city's payment. At the same time when the city's losing non resident income tax and losing revenue sharing. At some point in time, when your revenue begins to drop and your expenses rise, there's gonna come a time when there is a reckoning yeah. that you have to do. But and this is some... uh,
1: this is for, for everybody day to day. This right. is this is you and your house. <laughs> exactly. You know what I'm saying? Exactly. If you if, when you planning your family reunion barbecue, right, you right. know, <laughs> if 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 you thought you had fifty people coming and now the fifty people <laughs> turn into fifty kids right. and they only got two parents you going to move from ribs to hot dogs exactly exactly or, uh, you're not going to be eaten right
0: so so, so is, then you, you have know. so then you have you have that move being made which obviously begin to put tremendous financial pressure on the city's budget mm-hmm. you also had some accounting rule changes uh, by and by uh, Gatsby, uh, which basically said the cities now need to begin to account for unfunded pension liabilities Unfunded pension liabilities are those benefits that people will get when they retire. And so in the old days prior to, I think, the early 90s, they did not have to even account for those expenses. But with the accounting change and GASB rules, Uh, General Accounting Standards Board. Cities now had to begin to account for how they were going to pay those benefits, those future benefits, Mm -hmm. which really is nothing more than I call it paper money because you deal with it when you have to deal with it. You have people that are retired. um, You have people that have benefits. Those benefits are paid out over time. They don't all become due at one time. Mm -hmm. And so the city began to experience, I think, tremendous financial pressures, subtle pressures, which people don't really understand how this all plays in because if you're not a municipal budget junkie, you really don't understand the little intricacies of how just a change in accounting rule can impact the city. There was also a similar change that was done for the Detroit Board of Education. When I first started working as general counsel for the school district, the city, the school district only paid something like three or four percent into a state fund. Well, unilaterally, because the state fund began to uh, lower itself, The state legislature increased the amount of the actual payment that the Detroit Board of Education had to make. So I think that payment went from 3% to 20%. Mm. A 17% increase in any line item in your budget is going to begin to put financial stress on your budget. And so you had a similar move that was employed at the school district. So now you have the two largest employers in the city Mm -hmm. beginning to experience a financial stress. One obviously taking over emergency management because they wanted to control the um the co- control the, the school board mm. bond issues one point five billion dollars that was and placed we on the roll and, and uh, is still uh, on the books today.
1: And we uh and and David Adamani and John English stepped in yeah. as if they started yeah. caring about the education of oh, black students. In Detroit, your students. And even, they though the, even though the district
0: before. was performing, yes. the district had a hundred million dollars surplus. Yes. Uh the district had about two had about two hundred fifty thousand students, and this was before the rise and advent of charter schools within yes. the city of Detroit, which have dramatically impacted the funding stream. And there's also some issues about how education is funded in Michigan, which, we'll, we'll get to down so, the road. So,
1: so, and, and so people can recognize some of these points that I do bring up. So, Detroit public schools at that time like we're, we're talking 1990s detroit 1990s so 1990s detroit. 1990s detroit right uh what's happening is the largest employer of people in the city would be the the city of detroit and also detroit public schools it probably and was also,
0: dps was probably larger at that uh, time i mean you know you, when you're talking relative numbers of who actually yeah. were your major employers it was mm-hmm. it was dps i believe it was city Detroit uh it was it was chrysler i mean you had your automotives jumping the gm people like they they account for more employees than really are physically present yes. here in the city of detroit and
1: and so we're thinking that and then also owning of property yes. with dps in the city of detroit right. too and i want to frame this so at the time the superintendent was david snee david yes, snee moved Sneed. forward but the school <laughs> But the citizens supported this one point five billion dollar bond to support the students. Right. And this was also around the time uh, definitely before he passed, you know, rest in peace, Kwame Kenyatta. He was speaking about the African centered education movement that was happening and taking place around the city of Detroit. But what the state of Michigan was witnessing was a level of black empowerment and awareness that. Only made the state of Michigan look at the city of Detroit and say, damn, it looks like they about to pull some Coleman Young again.
0: Yeah. Yeah. But there was some, you know, I, I just happened to have been I was an attorney in private practice mm-hmm. and I actually represented there were two black companies that had gotten the contract. It was a first mm-hmm. big political battle yeah. over whether um, um, Madison and Madison um, black architectural firm led by Sharon Madison, uh, or AMAC sales and builder built uh, run by Andy Macklin, two black companies were vying to actually control the $1.5 billion bond deal. Yeah. Sneed wanted, um, I think Sneed wanted, Steve wanted Madison Madison. Uh, the board <laughs> wanted AMAC. And they ever, ultimately, mm-hmm. they worked out an agreement, what I call it a power sharing arrangement, where they actually split the district in half and gave each each entity 750 million dollars yeah but at that time obviously you still had a much different population base in the city of Detroit and once you start to look at demographic trends on where it was heading it was clear that the number of buildings that this district would need would not be the same Because Detroit has such a a long history of neighborhood schools. Yes. There was tremendous pressure on the school board to keep neighborhood schools open. And as a consequence of that, you spent a lot of money in small neighborhood schools, which ultimately became, I'm going to say, functioning obsolete in a period within five or 10 years because of loss of population and loss of of facilities in those buildings. They couldn't maintain their own system.
1: And as a... as the president of Northwestern High School alumni, okay. neighborhood school guy, right, uh, it. The other layers At this point Are charter schools Yes Charter schools Come in And, and that changes the, the look And layout Betsy so. DeVos
0: Led to legislative Changes in Michigan Which created charters. The charter school Movement Even though Detroit I think had Probably the most Successful African centered Education programs Of mm-hmm. any school In the yeah. nation mm-hmm. Strong curriculum Yes Strong uh, Administrators Strong mm-hmm. teachers Teaching empowerment To young kids A lot of kids that came to those programs to this day, I mean, they manifest the integrity, the strength and courage of the African-centered education. Uh, which we which we obviously we, which we needed. Yes. You then had the charter schools, which began to get a toehold in this, in, in the city of Detroit, uh, and they were let, brought here by by some black uh, operatives. I would say yeah. of the Republican Party, which created a charter movement. But it wasn't until they began to make I think major changes, a, a loss in population of the school district, where you begin to have vacant buildings, where the quality of the education really began to decline. That charges actually took hold.
1: And and I, I I do think that uh many things are happening in this time. Uh the face of of what existed and and many realities are changing because the Detroit that my father came to in the late 70s, and you mm-hmm. came to in the early 80s, and mm-hmm. and Charlie Beckham came to in the mid seventies, like, man, look at these black folks doing all this stuff. Right. It the 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 idea and but what could happen, even I think for the average Detroiter, we, we started seeing a ceiling on our sky
0: but of what one, black there, folks can do. But there is one of the factor that we have to in- inject mm-hmm. in this whole thing, and that was the advent of crack cocaine. Yeah, and the impact of crack cocaine was devastating uh, on our community. Mm-hmm. Um, crack cocaine cr- destroyed families, destroyed generations mm-hmm. of people. So we had grandmothers raising young children, and they already—I mean—they already, I mean, already raised their own children. So now they have to raise another set of kids the loss of a neighborhood structure, which really began to decline. You know, you had in the old days, you had strong neighborhood block club associations. You could always tell a, a strong neighborhood because they had those lights that ran up and down the, the community mm-hmm. because it was a sense of pride. So we began to lose that. We also began to, to, to lo- a lot, we lost uh, a lot of revenue. And so our ability to provide services which mm-hmm. created tremendous stress on the police department to have to respond to everything that came about. There was just a seismic shift in in what was occurring in the city and people weren't having enough yeah. conversation to really lay out and explain to people at a macro level because I'm, if you're just trying to survive, it's yeah. very difficult for me to explain to you from a macro level how the pressures are beginning to close in on the city of Detroit.
1: And, and it was, you know, it, it was my lifetime. I yeah. witnessed a lot of this, <laughs> but even in witnessing a lot of this, still the creativity and I, I still love it. I see so much When I'm in my neighborhood, I see, you know, even the houses that are, you know, boarded up and falling apart. It's like I it's like I know the family that used to stay there. Yeah. So I see it differently. I, 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 I know the potential of what can exist and also the freedoms of being a black entrepreneur that the city of Detroit provides me that I feel I cannot get any other place in the world. Well,
0: the struggle was personal to you. I mean, you've you've lived through a lot, and you've mm-hmm. seen a lot, and you have you have um, you have the ability to understand and appreciate how things change and how we can get things back, because there always has to be a message of aspiration and hope that we need to talk about, because mm-hmm. I don't think people talk enough about aspirationally how great we can be, how great we can become. How do I help you empower yourself? How do I help you move your children forward? You were telling me the story about the man across the street. Mm-hmm. You know, you provided him food. He asked for a book. That's a powerful statement, which meant he wants the best for his children. How do we help people in our communities get what they need so that they can be empowered to do the great work that we need to do? Because we do have a great foundation in history yeah. of brilliance, of of, of, of outstanding character, of, 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 of creativity, of doing the things that we need to do. Definitely,
1: and, and I guess that moves me, you know, back to more of your personal journey. Okay, okay. You 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 transitioned to working with the Coleman Young Coleman administration. Coleman Young administration. And you're a young guy in there. what, yeah, what was I that was... like? <laughs> <laughs> Being a young guy, what was the interview process even like? Because I hear these stories from people like, uh, you know, Richard Harrison and 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 right. even uh, you know Paul Taylor, and, yeah. they, and I I can only imagine. But what was it like, just the interview process of like the old man wants to interview
0: you? So so you know they had they had a great network of people and fillers, and they always could identify young talent. And hmm. so I guess I got identified as a young talent. Because I worked in part for Anna Dix Taylor, who had worked in the law department. I think she was deputy corp counsel. Her and Damon mm-hmm. Keith were good friends. I mean, they were all kind of, you had to be connected to somebody because you didn't mm-hmm. just show up— and, and get a job with Coleman. you had to be connected and I yes. was different because my father had never worked with him in the labor union mm-hmm. you know my mother had never worked with him in, so I was kind of a different breed because I had no historic roots with him mm-hmm. so I kind of was a novelty I want to say because I wasn't mm-hmm. really connected so when I found bet out you he like was,
1: Conrad Mallett he's <laughs> no, like I know your dad I'm, yeah, gonna, call, I'm gonna call your dad yeah
0: uh-huh. yeah. I can tell you some stories about that too so <laughs> so we uh, I, get the, I get the call to come in for the interview and it's just I mean you, you when you finally get to the 11th floor back in those days I mean it was a it was just a buzz with the activity and in his in that office in that office he actually had three secretaries mm-hmm. he had a secretary who sat right by his door he had another secretary in front of her and he had one on on the other side he had three secretaries and so it was sitting in the lobby you know you always had to wait it wasn't like The appointment was at 2 o'clock. You probably were not get in until 3 because things happen during the course of the day. Mm -hmm. So I finally get in, you know, to the room to sit with him, and he's sitting back. He uh, cat, cat, cat kind of a little, because of that emphysema, he had a good voice. How you, how you doing, young man? Yeah, well, you know, what, tell me about yourself. And then we just, we just talked mm. a lot. We talked about development because I really loved economic development. Mm. And uh, we talked about my history, my life, my, my family. And it was just you mother. and him one-on-one? Well, it started off with me and him one-on-one. And then Fred Martin, mm-hmm. Fred Martin, who was a time uh, uh, I guess he was a senior executive assistant uh, to the mayor. May may have been chief of staff for the city. His office was on the other side of the Coleman. Came in, and we sat in. And after we talked for about an hour, uh, they told me thank you very much, and they would get back with me. So then I had to wait it like you know two or three months before I heard mm. something. Then I got a call mm. that saying I had been hired, and he came in, and it was a very different environment. To work there Mm -hmm. because it was so much structure, because people had so much history. You had to almost kind of make your way because no one was sort of, no one was really inviting to tell you what you had to do. You kind of had to figure it out yourself. Yeah. So I bumped heads with a lot of people at the city. Mm-hmm. I bumped heads with Bella Marshall because I thought I wanted to fool <laughs> with some finance. I bumped heads with Charlie Williams. You know, I bumped heads with a lot of different people. They kind of had me in a box, literally.
1: Yeah, you were like, damn, yeah, what is going yeah, on with going these on? people at the city? I can't make no move here.
0: You know, I'm thinking that I know something I don't know nothing. Uh-huh. So Emmett Moden, who was Director of Economic Development, for some reason took a liking to me. Mm-hmm. And he said, young fella, you know you done got yourself messed up here. I'm just gonna let you work with me and that's when I begin to work on the Cobah expansion. Uh Chrysler-Jefferson expansion, uh, hmm. city airport commercial ring, commercial airline service back to the city of Detroit. It was just so many great things that I was able to wow. learn from a person who was a master wow. manipulator of situations.
1: And now and, and, and I, nah, I, I'm learning this history about yeah. you myself. Yeah. Especially, you, you talked about something that uh, is near and dear to me as a Detroiter, because right. you know, everybody on the east side is like, I live by the airport. It's like, how does everybody on the east side live by the airport? Yeah. Well, yeah. What was that project like?
0: Man, that was the, one of the most phenomenal projects I've ever been associated with. Actually, what happened was Southwest Airlines, they were... Opening up service at Metro Airport, mm-hmm. and they were—they came with speech. I think at the Economic Club of Detroit, where they talked about how they really viewed the Detroit market, why they were attracted to coming here. So we knew that we had an airport, and that we looked at the f- uh, the flight specifications of the aircraft because they used the seven thirty seven aircraft. Seven thirty seven aircraft actually can take off on less than three thousand feet of runway. Hmm. We only had. 5, maybe 6,000 feet of runway at Detroit City Airport. So we knew operationally they could land on our airport. So Emmett actually approached uh, the president of Southwest Airlines and invited him in to meet the mayor. I was able to come in that meeting where well, he just began to talk about how we could potentially put together a deal because obviously their model is airports close in cities, Midway, uh, Dallas, Love Field. All these airports are actually in cities mm-hmm. and it fit their business model. So we began to work on it, understanding, sort of the geometrics of how the runway uh, have to be designed, you know, how, what safety limits and things that and you have to have. And this is all new information. You're, all, you're an attorney, so you're, on, you're getting
1: into physics, engineering. Yeah,
0: physics, engineering, uh, uh, flight paths, you know, how, mm-hmm. how planes land, how they come in, how they come out. And so they begin to sort of fly what I would call experimental landings and takeoffs mm-hmm. in the city of Detroit just to figure out how that would look and how that would operate. We then had to apply for uh, FAA approval, and that's obviously where my legal skills came in, hmm. understanding what we needed to do. Because City Airport actually was the first commercial airport in this area, hmm. and then they they developed Metro Airport you know, after the late after the 30s, but City Airport was first. So we put together a plan of operationally, and we came into one big headache, which was Six Mile Road, because. The way that they designed the geometrics of an airport, nothing can impinge a a flight path within uh, a certain distance or feet of the end of the runway. And so we needed to close Six Mile Road in order to allow for a clear takeoff and uh, landings in-city airport. Well, we get back to city council and became a big battle so with now, city council. So
1: now you're getting into engineering with traffic and a whole exactly, nother plan of, exactly, uh,
0: exactly. of cars and man. And, and, so and, so we had to mm-hmm. we had to get a vote to close city yeah uh, close six mile road.
1: So you were talking to
0: Irma Henderson, and man. We ta- it was a but you know <laughs> council back Cockrell. in those days was way different <laughs> because they questioned everything. You couldn't. <laughs> what do you mean you're gonna change the light bulb? Let's talk about that. And it got to be a real contested issue in part because the people who lived in the neighborhood didn't necessarily want to uh, right, deal with next the door commercial to a, air- airport. To a airport so we finally i think it was a five to four vote we got we got six mile close that was the biggest step once we got that close then we had to fight the city of warren because at that time I can't remember the mayor's name but he was he was he was fighting us to the nail and I remember this classic line with Coleman which said hell planes been flying over <laughs> flying over your head all your life why are you worried about planes flying into Detroit after mm-hmm. we got all that worked out we got the, the got the FAA approval you know they began to fly flights in and out of the airport just to test the performance mm-hmm. capabilities of their planes. I was fortunate to be on the first flight that actually landed in the city airport. It was a great feeling. Uh, we had some we had some great battles over that because that's how the city ends up owning Gethsemane Cemetery, which is to the south of the mm-hmm. end of the runway, because we needed to put some equipment in this cemetery yeah. <laughs> to allow for the flight navigation equipment, uh, mm-hmm. flight navigation equipment in the planes to operate. And there was a story that was run by a reporter, which indicated that the city was moving bodies without people's permission and approval. <laughs> You don't realize how many people are buried in the cemetery until you talk about somebody's body being moved uh, without authorization. Now, it was a completely false story. Let me just say that. But as punishment, I had to field literally every call that came into the wow. mayor's office wow. that talked about uh, what went on in that what went on, what went on in that cemetery. But there was an interesting dynamic to create, you know, this opportunity for for a flight. We had the Aerospace Davis School, so there was opportunity for now for our young African American women. I didn't realize to become... that that started exactly. then. I
1: thought I don't know why I thought. No, just, Davis
0: existed before then. I
1: didn't realize that that was going in. I don't know why I thought that school started like in the nineties. No, that
0: school. This school has been around for years. I mean, that mm. was one of the reasons why I was there. But they changed the name, obviously, to Benjamin yeah. Davis, and mm. r- respecting uh, um, Chappie Davis uh, Air Force. General. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that was a great battle. It taught me a lot about regional negotiations, how things have to be handled. Because what happened when planes landed in City Airport at that time, if it's a clear day like today, the mm-hmm. pilots are taught to take the shortest route, which meant as long as they can see the end of the runway, it's really weird when you're sitting in the cockpit of a plane. Those pilots have, <laughs> they have phenomenal vision. If you can see the end of the runway, you're taught as a pilot to take the shortest path because that saves jet fuel because it's very expensive. And so what they began to do when they when they first started commercial service is they were coming, they would come over the Detroit River. We had an international issue with Canada because they have an airport that's almost sits parallel with Detroit City Airport. So we mm. had to work out some international treaties with the Canadian wow. government. And 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 so what they would do is when they were coming to land their planes, they started flying over Gross Point. Mm. Well, I can tell you what happened with that. Yeah, I can only We imagine. started getting calls from people just like, they can't do this. So they actually restricted their point of entry. They had to continue to go down the Detroit River, which is how they fly, and, and come up Connor, which is how Connor lays almost parallel with the north-south runway in order to land. But there was just a lot of different issues. I mean, that was one project. Another project I can talk to you about was Victoria Park Subdivision. Hmm. We had not had a a subdivision that had been built in Detroit since the Eisenhower administration. And I served on a board with a guy by the name of Gary Carley, who was executive vice president of then Standard Federal Bank, which ultimately became Bank of America. He said, we are interested in building a new housing subdivision in the city of Detroit, in part because we think that there is a market for new housing in the city of Detroit.
1: Well, I do have this question. Okay. Like, so as you're a young man taking on projects like this. Yes. Like, how is this changing? Uh... Like, like, how is this? Uh, how, how are you feeling? What are your emotions? Because you always said, okay, urban development was my thing, and you talked about it, and now it's like, okay, it, this is no longer. You're not playing Monopoly anymore. No, we're playing This real. is like, oh man, this is like, like, what what's happening just along the way for you as you're thinking about this, learning and negotiating international treaties and stuff like that. Has man, to be. I'm
0: I'm 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 becoming full of myself.
1: <laughs> yeah, but it almost has to be you're, surreal. You
0: know, your your success your success breeds a level of confidence because you understand now you begin to understand how all these pieces of the puzzle fit together Mm -hmm. how important it was for Detroit to have commercial airline service because people can now drive five minutes to the airport get on a plane get to Chicago and be home for dinner things of that nature were very very important economically because it Mm -hmm. drives a lot of engine and it does drive revenue to help you uplift and improve the quality of your airport because your employments are tied to the type of funding that you can get from FAA grants. And so you begin to understand now how important all these things are to fit together, which was why creating new housing opportunities became almost a passion. And so I remember having a conversation with Gary Carley. He said he wanted to do a project in the city of Detroit. So I was really excited. So I go back, you know, and you had to sign up. You had to sign a list to get in to see the mayor. I mean, I wasn't at a high enough level where I could just yeah, demand to walk in. Yeah. That would not happening. Oh, yeah. you, you I'm go, sure
1: you would not want to hear the colorful no, language associated you, with uh, you gotta go popping through, in
0: on him. You got to go through three secretaries, okay? Uh-huh. So I told them that I had a, I had a, I had a commitment from a head of the largest bank in the state of Michigan that they wanted to do a housing subdivision in the city of Detroit. And however they process information, stuff like that got through really quick. He calls me <laughs> and he says, who is this guy? What's he all about? I said, mm-hmm. man, the guy wants to do something in Detroit. He said, call him up. I want to meet with him tomorrow. Mm. Call the guy up. We meet with him the next day. He says, Mr. Mayor, we're prepared to build a new subdivision in the city of Detroit uh, they had what they called in those days was the homorama, where the Builders Association of Southeastern Michigan would put, they would find a subdivision to mm-hmm. put new homes on display. He said, the only issue we have to do is we have to negotiate with the Builders Association of Southeastern Michigan, a guy by the name of Irv Yakness. He was mm. the general council president, which is a weird combination mm-hmm. to have for an individual. It was one of the toughest negotiations I ever had. But what we learned from that is when you look at the Victoria Park subdivision to this day, it has stood the test of time because there were certain things that they needed in order that, but they felt needed to be successful. It had to have kind of a suburban feel. You know, you had to have the road curves. You had to have a lot of different things that we had to negotiate in the city Um, But when Coleman was a man, was able to shift resources around to create the footprint and the infrastructure for that subdivision Mm. to be built, which to this day is the most successful subdivision ever built by the Builders Association of Southeastern Michigan. People who bought their houses on the front end of Victoria Park subdivision, when they turned around and sold their houses in four or five years, I mean, they were doubling their prices of what they got. Mm. And it was a great project. It taught me a lot about how you really have to negotiate, how you structure your deals to—is it give and take in all this? And we were able to walk away with a product that people, to this day, when you look at the subdivision, it looks absolutely beautiful still.
1: And and, and as you speak about that, this is unique as the the Detroit nerd in me. I sometimes <laughs> just go to King books, but I was looking for information specifically about you know uh, the structure of Detroit government, yeah. and I found the book that was the plans for harbortown
0: yes yes and
1: i was looking at it and i was like man this is unique that like just the details into the harbortown plans i'm like yeah i mean this is five dollars this has got to be worth five dollars this will help me in business one day well that was
0: that was the old michigan consolidated gas i think it was it was the company Mm -hmm. um it was a guy my name was larry Marintet. he was in their real estate development division they wanted to do something in the city of detroit and they picked that site because it was on the water. It offered great amenities, and they could build high rises that would make it attractive for people to live there. Uh, and that was a pretty decent and successful project to this day. I mean, the values for what people are getting for those properties is still a relatively yeah. strong.
1: Yeah. Uh, and now, as you get this experience, you, you shift – Back into personal practice too. What was yeah. the what was the catalyst back into personal practice in in, in that time, and, yeah. and then you get back into government definitely.
0: Right. So so what happened was, I mean, you never leave an election during election year. You don't leave a, you don't leave your position during election year. Mm-hmm. And so I it, the rumors were that you know that the mayor wasn't going to run again, and so I said I need to begin to figure out you know what my transition strategy and plan was going to be. Mm-hmm. And so I began to throw out some feelers, you know, to some different law firms who were interested in a in, in, in person with my skill set. And so I took a position. I became of counsel to a uh, Dykema Mm-hmm. of counsel uh, is a is a, is a position where you treat it like a partner, but you don't have an actual a share in the income of the firm. You just get a pretty decent salary. Mm-hmm. So I did that for a couple of years, really didn't like that big firm experience, and so I decided I need to go into private practice for myself. So I hooked up with three other brothers, uh, two of which were practicing together, and two other me and another guy joined the firm. And so we created our own firm where I specialized in affordable housing development. That really was one of my forte and because I love housing housing development infrastructure and things of that nature. So we grew this firm to a, probably about 14 attorneys, you know 25 support staff mm. and brothers decided that they want to go in different directions. So we, we dissolved the firm and I became actually a public housing uh, consultant because mm. I did a lot of work for the Detroit Housing Commission where you look at the Jefferies, um, which became Woodbridge estates. yeah, that was one of my projects. Herman Gardens, how they transformed that. That was one of my projects. Mm-hmm. Actually, the first major one was Parkside uh, Homes, which was the first kind of Hope Six project where they talked about integrating market rate and public housing people mm-hmm. together. So I kind of did that. So I really, I really began really began like
1: to, layers of stuff. Yeah, like, you name the yeah. neighborhoods of my favorite girlfriends exactly. in the past. Exactly, And, <laughs> and I mean, I mean,
0: and along the way, you know, there was the uh, Wayne County Water Park in Chandler Park. Mm-hmm. You know, I was instrumental in mm-hmm. that. Uh, the Wayne County Youth Home, the first one downtown. Mm-hmm. Right across from Frank Murphy Hall of Justice I mean, there's so many projects I could point to that I've been involved in i probably forgotten more projects yeah. uh, East Lake Baptist Church I mean, wow. a lot of church development in the city of Detroit I just had my hands in a lot of that So after I did my public housing stint and traveled around the country uh, I got a call from uh, the school board They were looking for an attorney who could be general counsel Who had a great experience in economic development Who understood the city Mm-hmm. So I go in, I interview, you know, they make me ultimately they make me general counsel for the school district where I'm over both the uh, um, general counsel budget, uh, but I'm also over the title one funding budget for title one mm-hmm. for the schools. So I had a dual role in compliance in both of those departments, mm-hmm. which gave me a much broader perspective of school districts. And I probably have visited back in those days. I probably had visited more than 200 schools mm. because, you know, schools in those days, they had a lot of career days and they always wanted the lawyers to come out and speak to them. So I've been in, I've been in so many schools in the city of Detroit.
1: is coming up. This too, it's a virtual career is day it? this Tuesday, yes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and so I had, a, um, I had this thing where I could walk into a building and I could tell you exactly what was going on in the building by what? the sound that I heard when I walked in the door. Wow. And there was some incredible educational environments. We have to understand the district was organic in that you had teachers who had been in buildings for years. They would they they taught yeah. children and they taught the mothers. I mean, it was it was a great family and, relationship and, and connection the, with and, the community. And the building
1: stock too. So like the printing right. press at Cody, I went to Northwestern. So we had a planetarium, yeah. radio television studio, right. uh, Central had a, a full recording studio. Like exactly. these schools have like different assets that you you know Henry Ford like has like a whole. Like, machinist training. Well, like, I mean, you you're you know. talking
0: about the 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 vocational, you know, technical schools, which obviously came about, which were really were in response to a lot of the desegregation that mm-hmm. occurred in the city of Detroit, with the battle for local control over school districts and Judge Judge, um, Keith dynamic ruling about cross-district busing, which actually Mm -hmm. led to a famous Supreme Court case, Milliken versus Bradley. Well, the Supreme Court said that unless you can prove that that the segregation in a school system is a direct result of the state, you cannot have cross-district busing as a remedy to deal with that, which led to the rise, coincidentally, of Brooks Patterson, who was a Mm -hmm. vehement uh, anti-busing advocate, a racist, uh, who fought that tooth and nail. Mm -hmm. And so we begin to look at personalities of people who developed over Time yes. during that time period, and their impact to this day, his impact on uh, not wanting uh, a viable uh, mm-hmm. regional transportation bus system, which we which we so desperately need. Yeah. So I come into the school district, I'm placed into this position, and this is during the time when they had been uh, David Burnley, uh, Ken Burnley. I'm sorry, yes. I was the he was the, uh, he was they, superintendent they, he was a superintendent but he was he was a state he was a he state, was state appointed su- he superintendent.
1: was uh, the emergency management right exactly superintendent.
0: and so you know we get into major battles <laughs> Because I'm legal I'm general counsel I have to sign off On a lot of the actions That they were taking And there were a lot of things That they were doing that I just simply Did not agree with it Did not agree with the decision To sell the school centers Building to Wayne State To take yeah. a condo interest In that I felt that they should have been Spending much more money uh, in, in, in trying to consolidate schools But they were trying to hold on To a neighborhood school model That was going to be antiquated Within 10 years Which is why you had decisions Made on spending money In buildings that ultimately closed down in four or five years because the demographics didn't say that those buildings could be sustained. And so they should have been looking at a different approach. They also should have been looking at the fact that with the rise in charter schools and and a cap on how these things were, were impacting the city... The, the district, from my perspective, should have moved and began to license charter schools in the city of so Detroit.
1: They, they, the, the, the district licensed some, but it was later on that down was, the it line. Was,
0: it was almost, but by then, by then the horse was out the barn. Yeah. Because what they could have done with their infrastructure, they could have provided services, food service, security services to these other charter schools, which they could have had yeah. much more control over. Excuse me the product that they were offering. And we had tremendous battles on this whole issue, policy perspective about what was going on. So about 2004, I started getting calls from Kwame Kilpatrick. Mm -hmm. I didn't really know him. I knew his mother, his father. Mm -hmm. I had worked with his father uh, because I had been hired – Uh, By the McNamara administration to uh, do projects, uh, the Wayne County uh, uh, Water Park, Mm -hmm. uh, the uh, Wayne County Youth Home. These are projects that general counsel, a lady by the name of Jennifer Granholm Mm -hmm. was the general counsel. And Because in those days, everything was negotiated. There wasn't any surprises that happened at Wayne County. Everything Mm -hmm. was already agreed to before it came to the table. So I started getting calls from him. Uh, he's asking me if I need, if I'd like to work with him, and I'm like, man, I got a great job. I got a great <laughs> staff. No <laughs> l- l- low levels of stress. You know, I'm seeing you taking water <laughs> every day. Yeah, it just wasn't something I was interested in. So I got a call from uh, Bella Marshall, Don Barton, mm-hmm. uh, Bill Brooks, some mm-hmm. business people in 20s They say, look. We need you to go over and help this young man. Mm. Uh, he's having issues. Uh, he needs somebody who understands the lay of the land, who's mm. experienced in government, who knows how these parts fit together. We think you would be a good fit for him. So I finally go meet with the guy, and you know, the cat was dynamically, I mean, brilliant. Oh, very, uh, very,
1: uh, <laughs> for people that don't know, and I've met him many times, and it's right. so funny. I, I, and it was like, boy, oh boy, sometimes my temper rarely, rarely runs one guy. I'm in, I'm in this discussion. Right. And, and I'm talking about like just, you know, brilliant and how eloquent he is. And then this guy's like, well, you white guy was like, well, you know, I'm a guard for where he's at. And I'm like, well, would you say some goofy <laughs> shit like that? You know, excuse my French. Right, but right. It, but uh, very eloquent, very persuasive. Yes, um, very persuasive. Brilliant, uh, you know, and even. study. Yeah. I yeah.
0: mean, retention, he probably was a, was a 80, 90% retention guy. I mean, you could read complex documents and uh, decipher quickly, and then be able to articulate. Yeah, I recall one time there was a there was a meeting when when uh, when the minister was coming to Detroit, mm-hmm. and there was a um, there was a call out from the uh, from the Jewish constituency that uh, they were not um, they were not in favor of him meeting with the minister, mm-hmm. and so he invited the the coalition in, and we were sitting around the table mm-hmm. having a conversation. And he says this thing. He says, You know, he says, up until the time I was in the eighth grade, I actually uh, went to a church that believed that white folks were the devil. <laughs> You could have mm-hmm. heard a pin drop up in the room because he so caught them off guard with that comment. And then mm-hmm. he broke it back and said, but you have to understand, in my community, the minister is, is revered. Yeah. <laughs> he, is a, he is a welcome member in our community and we yeah. have to respect him and give him his due. So when he mm-hmm. comes here, you have to understand that he's a part of my community just like you're a part of my community. Mm-hmm. Like I would meet with members of your religious your community. As well. I have to meet with him as well. He says, and if you would like to, I would be more than happy to to, to to the introduction. They it. don't
1: they don't want that introduction. That introduction no. never got taken. up.
0: <laughs> but I mean it's just saying, That's just kind of the person that that he, that he was um and 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 coming in was it was a different environment at that point in time. The city was much smaller, the, the demands were much greater. And then i, mean, I saw him in a much high more high level position and, and as also, deputy mayor.
1: And also uh we a lot of things changed from from Coleman young to Dennis Archer as well. Yeah. <laughs> and, and just the, the expectations of what city services were.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, and, and then also the, the understanding because Coleman young's legacy yes. was, was so large and looming. But when I speak of his administration and his legacy, it was like an interconnection of like some of the, most brilliant and greatest black minds leading up to propel a coleman young into that place it's almost like the 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 best and the brightest in their yes. in their 20s and their 30s like i've heard these stories that you know through through Charlie uh, Beckham, i mean uh it, it,
0: malcolm malcolm dade yeah uh, i mean beckham's brother uh mm. you just had you yeah. just had great minds great strategists great Thinkers, they were thinkers. See, yeah, people, like, we, yeah. we have a we have an anti-intellectual bent in our community. We really don't like people who think, but we should, mm-hmm. because people who think can can analyze and dis- decipher and break things down, so that puts people in a much better position to give information that people need in order to determine whether or not a good decision is being made.
1: And that and that brings us as we get closer to a close. I have my yes. classic questions, but before then right now you you're yes, running from there what right. was the catalyst to say it's time well and i need to be in this position when you look at
0: um what has gone on in the city of detroit especially over the last four years with the acceleration of gentrification in our neighborhoods with the massive takeaway of tax captures and abatement, which is stripping away resources and money from our schools and our libraries when you look at the fact that that black contracting is at an all-time low When you look at the fact that the average income of a Detroit person is $27,000. When you look at the fact that we have more people who rent versus rather than own their homes. When you begin to look at the fact that crime is out of control. When you begin to look at the fact that we have somehow lost our way. Because when you look at the elected leadership in the city of Detroit, you you have a white mayor. You have a Chinese-American state center on the east side of Detroit. You have an East Asian guy who just moved here from Ann Arbor that ran and became a state legislature. We have an Italian-American superintendent of Detroit Public Schools who looks to see where are we in leadership in our own city. And when you also begin to look at the fact that people's voices have been silent, that people are quiet about what's going on in this city, that I just felt there was a need for someone to stand up and say no, not anymore that we need to debate these issues that you can't tell me that it's raining when I when I know you're peeing on my head we Mm got to be able to force the issue to be much more aggressive in our conversation about what's going on in this town because the traditional voices of people who you expect to speak up they've been silent
1: and and it's unique too uh like coming to that conclusion because it's a family decision yeah. as I've seen people uh, that I've loved and you know my godmother being Joanne Watson yeah. and and just my family's Mama connection. Watson. Uh, uh,
0: Sharon I gotta Phil tell you a story and, about her before you oh, before oh, we yeah, break yeah. up.
1: And and so many like <laughs> running for office is like that's a family decision. It's, it is. it's daunting. It's it's you you you've seen it. Yes. Uh campaigning is, is is work within itself, but then in the office that's that's a whole nother form. So what was it like even talking to your friends, your family, your your wife of all right, this is what I'm about to do?
0: So You know, um, when I talked to my wife initially, she was very, very hesitant and really didn't want me doing this. Mm -hmm. Um, She felt that, obviously, the the sacrifices that you have to make in order to run for this position, Mm -hmm. whether it's financial, uh, you're going to be under much more tremendous stress because they have a machine out there that grinds people up Mm -hmm. and spits them out. Mm -hmm. And so you've got to have really a strong intestinal fortitude, which she has. She's a very strong woman, sister from the West West Side of Detroit, who believes in me, who believes in my policies, and so after we had much conversation, thought, had and to negotiate. prayer,
1: that was the first negotiation. Well, and we had, <laughs> and we had much prayer. Uh-huh. Uh,
0: you know, we felt that we had we had what it would take in order to propel and and, and make this battle uh, successful, because mm-hmm. the victory has already been claimed. When you're out yeah. on the street as much I am, and you talk to people who are who have lost hope who are looking for that that kernel of hope and expectation, it's so refreshing to hear it because people who are not connected to the politics have a much different world than people who are connected to the politics of the city.
1: Yeah. And and, and I do think that because there, there are definitely many people that say this can't happen, that can't happen. But Just from the way my dad speaks about things And and some of the elders I look up to And when they talk about the structure And how things could and can happen And then I see some of the then I see the smoke and mirrors yeah. of some of the things that, or what I feel like are smoke and mirrors they are. of, of <laughs> the things that are happening now. Like, you know, I open cranes and they say, like, all these people that work for Quicken Loans. And I think to myself, well, like, I mean, you give me that many. You give me the access to some of the, the, the properties. and, and, and Well, it's, uh, it's,
0: a, it's a dangerous thing for one man to own everything. Yeah. That's a dangerous it's a dangerous thing and we've got to begin to diversify ownership uh, in downtown and, Detroit and then,
1: and then we got to talk about like I mean if it was given I don't know how much of it I can really call true ownership.
0: Well, when you talk about the level of abatement that's been given over time to support the projects that he has, I mean, he yeah. bought, now, I'm going to give him credit for being strategic because oh, yeah, he yeah. sees value. We, we When we were talking offline today, we talk about how we need to view value in our own communities, mm-hmm. where some people see vacant land, some people see the opportunity to own a lot of land yes. and property in the city of Detroit. So we got to begin to change people's mindsets about value and what's important. Can I give you my Joanne Watson story? Yeah, please do. So we're we we're, we're negotiating, and there's some issues with the library, with, with the with the zoo mm-hmm. about potential transfer of control because because the city can no longer afford to finance the zoo itself. Mm-hmm. So there was a big meeting in City Council one day where I where I made to say I made a statement to say that if you all don't vote for this, we're going to have to close the zoo down.
1: <laughs>
0: city Council got bombarded. <laughs> with phone calls from everybody in the region. Mm-hmm. They were getting killed. Their switchboard was completely jammed. Mm-hmm. And so after I made that statement, which was very provocative, and mm-hmm. provocative so because when you're deputy mayor, you have to be provocative at times to get people to move in a direction. Mm-hmm. So Mama Watson mm-hmm. called, called Quam, as they say, and she says, that boy came up here and threatened us, and we're getting killed now. Uh-huh. We're not voting for nothing mm-hmm. unless he comes up here and apologizes. Mm-hmm. So, Mayor comes in and says, "You know, Mama Watson, she she mad at you." Uh-huh. As he's laughing, I said, "You sent me up there to take the bullet." Uh-huh. I said, "I said, but you know, ain't nowhere in the world." I'm going up there and apologizing for nothing. He Mm -hmm. said, I know, I get it, I get it, I get it. He said, you don't have to to say I apologize, but what you should say was, if you were offended by what I said, that was not my intent. Mm -hmm. I think that's a good compromise. So I have to go up to council, man, and we're in the main hall, mm-hmm. the, the main auditorium, man, and auditorium is packed, you know, because you know Mama Watson could always have other mm-hmm. people up there, oh, and, yeah. and they were very vocal. Yeah. And so I go into my speech, and they said, you need to apologize. You're just hearing it from the back of the room. You need to apologize to Mama Watson, blah, mm-hmm. blah, blah. And I said, well, I said, if if you were offended by my comments, that was not, <laughs> not my. Mm-hmm. I <laughs> the room went crazy mm-hmm. we ultimately did get the vote happening but you mm-hmm. know is is that you what you learn mm-hmm. is that oftentimes you're put in situations to bring movement together at the end of the day we all were still family and I consider her to be mm-hmm. obviously one of my one of my dearest friends and you just you just you, you continuously learning these positions that you know the art of compromise uh, is so important that sometimes you just have to sit down and work things out,
1: and, and I, I think that that's that's very true. And then also uh, having uh, having respectful discourse, yes, because we we need to see different layers. Yes, my journey as a in media and podcasting is like my perspective is we need to do this, and, and media needs to be that. Like we need more maker spaces. Can you right. empower people with maker spaces? And then and then you know as 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 ideas open up, then I end up in that place and I learn up, OK, well, then if people are doing this with makerspaces, this impacts a block like that. Right. How do you impact traffic flow? And then you start saying, like, all right, I didn't think of all that. now, nah. You know, <laughs> so it it's uh, it's good to have that discourse. Yes, you so have here, to. Here are your classic Detroit is different questions. Right. Uh, what was your very first car? Year, making model and when did you get it?
0: Uh, it was a 68 Mustang. Wow, that's, a, that's in, a heck of a first in, car. I got it in 1973 and I wrecked it. I think two months later. Okay,
1: well, do you remember where was the first place you went?
0: Uh, I think I probably went to a park to show off. They had a park See, called Eden Park, and you know that's where people would hang out. And I just drove through, and I thought I was, I thought I was the <laughs> real deal. A
1: 68 Mustang. That's right. a heck of a yeah. Man, you said you wrecked it, it two months black, later. It
0: was black. It was it was black with a red interior. Oh. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. It was my mother gave it to me because I think she went and actually bought her a '73 Monte Carlo. Okay, I think that's what she did. So she a gave 73 me her '73 Monte yeah, Carlo. Yeah, that's you know the, the two diamonds. door uh, with the big front seat. Those big front seats. Oof. came in handy at times.
1: See those gas guzzlers, <laughs> man? I'm telling you those gas those old school cars. I mean, yeah. we see them, you know, yes. we see them all the time with people. That's why it's the dream cruise yeah. cuz it's still a dream of cruising in those vehicles. Exactly. Uh so you're the DJ yes. at the end of the fireworks. Right. Uh what were well, I don't even know how they did this with but what were the Jefferson? That's what I always say. Right. I don't know what's right. happening with the spirit of Detroit Park thing. Right. Uh you get to play one song. Right. What song are you playing for the crowd? And it's the end of the fireworks, and then the high- highlights on you.
0: We're trying to we're trying to calm the crowd down, and we're trying to pump them I, it, up. It's however you feeling. Uh, it probably would be, um, man. It would probably would be summer madness. Mm. Yeah, summer summer madness. Okay, okay. So Roy
1: Airs, that'll definitely calm people down, yeah. but but a
0: cool vibe. Yeah, cool vibe, man. Let's just go home on on a nice vibe. Let's let us everybody get home safely.
1: Okay. And the very last question, if you could rename what we're after 1D who would it be and why?
0: Um I mean, it, it, it has to be called Calvin a Young Boulevard. It would have to be um great politician who did some things. People don't understand the Cobo Hall expansion project was the greatest political maneuver ever pulled off in the state of Michigan. Hmm. Why? Because Coleman Young was able to convince suburban legislatures to pass a regional tax to support the expansion of Cobo Hall and they had no control over it masterful move, bringing people down for the Grand Prix, working with uh, Coruban Associates, a lobbying firm in Lansing, putting all together the package and the funding necessary to make that happen in opposition of suburban leaders who did not want it to happen. Greatest political feat I've ever seen. And I mean, the people move was another one, but that is the greatest because he was able to (laughs) impose on the regional cities a hotel motel liquor tax to finance the expansion of Cobo Hall. Greatest political move I've ever seen in my life.
1: Wow. Wow. That's uh you you added layers. He's usually the the so it's like I, I would say it's probably Coleman Young, right. then Aretha Franklin. Some people say Barry Gordy, and then we get some off. Options. So, sometimes Michael uh, Patrick. Uh, yeah, but, yeah. Uh, it depends on. It one. depends
0: on what you. I mean, you're the talking era. about creative energy and bringing together and creating a sound and the soul for the city. Obviously, is is, is Barry Gordy and Motown. Mm-hmm. When you talk about, you know, the 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 great intellect and legal minds. You know, we've had so many great ones. Whether it. it was Damon Keith and Crockett. I mean, had great black mm-hmm. legal minds in this town.
1: Even Milton Henry. Oh, I mean, Milton no.
0: Henry. I mean, you know, Republic in New Africa, the the birth of birth of black liberation theology in the city of Detroit, which -hmm. is why I find it so amazing that people are so passive. When you look at the history and the roots and the origins of where the people came from in this city, it is not a passive city in mindset. Mm -hmm. It's not a passive city in theology. So we've got to restore the pride, restore the greatness. And I'm here to, to, to go out here and fight this battle for the people.
1: Thank you so much. Thank Thank you you so much. This was a great interview. I'm going to get it up ASAP.
0: All right. All right. Peace. You're listening to the Detroit is Different Podcast Network.